Welcome to Outreach Church. Thanks for checking out this week's message. To hear more, subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or visit outreachchurch.net for downloads and service information. Good morning. We should be real careful that we don't fall into the trap of putting all of our best days either behind us or before us. You know, the Bible says, don't say that those were the good old days, for these are the good days. And that we actually enjoy today without letting the expectancy of tomorrow overshadow the goodness of the day. Because yeah, there are promises of God that are yet to come, but there's also promises from God that are in this day, in this moment, today, for here, for now, to be enjoyed. And if we're not careful, we'll put everything off to someday when we, and we'll live our whole lives. It's, it's the way that we're built from birth, really. It's like you, you have these milestones, and if you're not careful, you start to put your life and enjoyment of life off to these points. You know, it's like when you're a kid, you just can't wait until, you know, you can, you can go to school because that's what all the cool kids do, you know, and so you want to be old enough to go to school. And then when you start going to school, it's like, well, I can't wait until I get a little bit older and I can, you know, whether it's get a phone or you want to go to middle school because you, you, you think that'd be cool because then you have a locker. I mean, that was a big deal for our little girl, right? And it was like this thing. It was like, I'm finally going to middle school and I get to have a locker, you know, and it's like, and then you get to middle school and then pretty soon you have a couple of friends that are driving and it's like, man, I can't wait till I get a little bit older and I can get a license and have that freedom to just go where I want to go. And, and then you want to graduate from school because, you know, it's, it's school, and then, you know, so you put it off, and so then, then it's like, well, I want to go to college, or I want to go start my career, or whatever it is, and, and, and then it's, well, I want to get married, you know, and then when you get married, you want to have children, and then when you have children, you want to see them be able to do all the things that you wanted to do when you were little, and, and you can't wait until they can walk, and you can't wait until they can talk, and, 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 and all these things, and all those things are amazing, But if we put our enjoyment of life off until that day, we will always reset where life is enjoyable. And it will be a milestone that we never reach. And our pleasure and enjoyment of the life that God created us for will be lost in the sea of one day when I, rather than understanding that today is the day that He's made and I'll rejoice and be glad in it. That this is the day. Like He created this day for me to enjoy Him fully. And that while I know there's still some things that are yet to come, and I know there's things that He's spoken over my life that are still coming, there's also things that He spoke over my life years ago that I'm living in the fullness of today. And if I can't enjoy that today, I won't enjoy the others tomorrow. So stop. Don't give in to the temptation to constantly think that there's something coming that's going to make then when I, I will. And if I could just, then I would. Stop and realize... Today, I can enjoy being the child of God that He created me to be. I can be the son, be the daughter that He created to me. And that's what I think what Jesus said. Don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow will have enough trouble of its own, but suffice is today, the day. And I think what He's saying is like, if you guys aren't careful, you'll constantly live. You'll be alive and existing in today, but you'll actually be living in tomorrow. And you'll actually never be present right where you are. And then one day, you'll be older And you'll look back and realize, man, I missed out on so much waiting for this day to come, thinking that this would be the day that would bring the completion of all the things I I thought angels would sing. And, you know, it's like, man, they were singing 
2,000 years ago, and they haven't stopped singing since. It's just sometimes we don't slow down enough to hear them. All right? So, uh, so God, I just thank you for the ability today, for every single one of us, to trust you enough with tomorrow and to be so content that yesterday is completely gone and that I'm not living my life in fear of yesterday coming and ruining my today. But I trust You that You are my rear guard. And forgetting what lies behind, I press towards the high mark of the calling of Jesus. That I can live in today, God. I just pray for every one of us that we would be so here today, God. That we would see everything that You're saying and hear everything You're saying and see everything that You're doing in today so that every day we have a reason to worship, a reason to rejoice, God. And then tomorrow, when tomorrow becomes today, we'll enjoy and we'll rejoice in that day. But that we'll never let tomorrow, the anxiety, the worry, or even the excitement of tomorrow overshadow the fullness of today. I thank you for that, God. Amen. Is everybody having a good week? Yeah, you're having a good week already? It's going to be an awesome week. It's going to be full of Him. Um, you might as well just decide that now before you start the week rather than going out and letting your week happen to you go out and happen to your week, right? And just decide, this is going to be an amazing week. This is going to be a week full of Him. And I fully expect that I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living this week in my life. Um, I'm serious, right? Like, I fully expect that. I will see. I would have dismayed, right? Like, like David was saying that he's not saying there's nothing going on in my life that could cause despair. He said, I would have despaired. Like, I look around and I'm being chased by a psychotic king whose throne I'm supposed to be sitting on. Everywhere I turn, there's people who are trying to betray me for the reward that's on my life. I'm living in a cave when I should be living in a palace. I've done nothing to this man but serve him, fight his battles, kill his giants. I've done all these things for him. I've played my harp and my guitar for him. I've calmed him when evil spirits came upon him. And yet he chases me relentlessly and he wants to kill me. He's taken the very daughter that he gave me to marry and gave her to another. The love of my life has been given to another man and sleeps in another man's bed. Yeah, that's all true. And I would have dismayed had I not believed this one thing that I would see the goodness of God in the land of the living. It's not like we get born again and suddenly everywhere you go, everything's perfect. The difference is, is that you get born again and everywhere you go, the perfect one is there in the mess with you. And there's a promise that will never leave you, he'll never forsake you. And that if you continue to be steadfast, faithful, and obedient, even when you don't see the reward, that one day you'll live in the reward of the fruit of the seeds that you plant in that day. And that the things that I do today are setting me up to re- eat and live in the reward of them tomorrow. And that even if I don't see an immediate result today, He's still worth it. And there's an expectancy in my life of good. And so when things get a little bit dark or things get hard or when things are going on around me, it just ratchets up the expectancy I have in me. Rather than becoming afraid and rather than freaking out, it starts this excitement and this anticipation. Rather than anxiety, it fills me with anticipation because what is God going to do? Because He made the promise, not me, that He would work all things for my good because I love Him and I'm called according to His purpose. And I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. 
you can take that promise and you can apply that every single day and then wake up every morning living in the knowledge of that and go happen to your day rather than letting your day determine whether or not you're doing okay. See, because if we're not careful, circumstance will determine that. It will. We wake up in the morning and the first thing that happens has the ability to determine whether today is going to be a good day or not and we haven't even made it out of the door yet. Or we can wake up in the morning and determine that today will be a good day because He's on His throne and I'm His Son. And He loves me and He placed His Spirit inside of me. And He said that I was created for good works that He prepared beforehand that I would walk in them. And so the, the question isn't whether I'm going to walk in good works, it's what's the good works that I'm going to walk in today. Because that's a promise of His. And it's amazing when you leave the door with that expectancy how you get what you expect. Hey, how are you? Don't worry about that, it's fun. Um, when you leave the door with that expectancy, it's amazing because you see things through a different filter because you have a single eye and all you can see with that eye is the promises of God. And that's why the Bible says if your eye is single, then your whole body is filled with light. In other words, if my eye is single, if I see one thing, and that is I see Jesus and I see His promises and I see the goodness of the Lord, if that's the lens that I'm looking through and the eye that I'm looking through, then when I see things that don't line up with what He said in my life, they don't have the ability to change what I believe what I believe has the ability to change what I see. And I go out and happen to my day rather than letting my day just happen to me. And I live intentionally from that place. So um, thank you guys so much for coming. Um, we've been talking about... Oh, how many of you women came yesterday? Oh, wasn't it awesome? I wasn't even there and all I've heard... <laughs> Well, you could imagine. I heard from every woman that was there, and I just want to say thank you to all the women that helped make that happen. You guys are amazing. And there was there's so many people that are talking about just the time they had with the Lord and just what it did in their hearts. And just that hearts are being knit and drawn together and families happening because people are starting to actually believe that they can be vulnerable with people and still be loved and still be accepted and known for who they are and be known. Like, isn't that an amazing thing when you can actually be known by people? When you can actually say, this is who I am. And yeah, if you look closely, you see some scars and some dings. And yeah, there's times sometimes where some things, I give myself to some things in my life that I probably shouldn't have, but this is who I am. And someone can come along and say, I see who you are and I love you. And this is who I am. And we encourage each other. It's not like this, this pity party where we sit around licking each other's wounds and telling each other how bad it is. It's this thing where we encourage each other into how great and how awesome He is. Right? And so I'm just thankful for that. I'm, I'm really excited that that happened. And I know you guys had an awesome time. So thank you so much for that. Um, you know, it's like a church or, or an organization or a body, whatever community group, whatever you, you, thing you have, it, there's actually nothing like magical within that. Like so many times it's like marriage, like we get married and we expect that because we're married, now these things are going to happen, you know, like there's this, this idea of romance and, and there's this idea of like fun and spontaneity and all these things, but actually marriage itself has none of that within it, but there's the potential. So if, if you want romance in your marriage, then you actually have to put romance into your marriage. If you want spontaneity in your marriage, then you actually have to put spontaneity into your marriage. 
It's like when you walk into a forest, there's not a hardwood floor there when there's a bunch of oak trees, but there's the potential for it. It's what you're willing to actually do and what you're actually willing to cultivate and the effort that you're willing to put into it determines what you get out of it. And it's like that with relationships. It's super easy to say we want deep relationships, but are we actually willing to go and, and, and do the things necessary to cultivate, develop, and maintain deep relationship with each other? The potential's there. But there's nothing magical about just sitting next to somebody. It actually takes someone looking at the person next to them and saying, hey, I'd like to get to know you. I'd like to know you and be known by you. And when that starts to happen, it's, it's amazing what happens in people's lives. So I'm really stoked about that. If you have your Bibles, open up to Genesis chapter 17, verse 9. I feel like someone here needs to hear that. There's, there, like A lot of the things in your life, there's potential in them, but sitting back and waiting for God to do the thing that He hasn't promised you He's going to do, you could sit there forever. We talked about that a little last week, but just a reminder, right? Like, Like, when the Israelites walked to the edge of the Red Sea, their job was just to sit back and wait and see God part the sea. One man had a job. It was Moses. He was to raise his staff, and then the promise of God was that he would part the sea. But the next time they came to a body of water that they had to cross, then God said, now I don't want you to sit back and watch and one man do everything like it was before. It's never God's heart for an entire body of people to sit back and watch one man do everything. It may start that way with somebody having a vision, but eventually he's called to bring people in with him. And he said, no, this time when you cross the body of water, it's not one man's responsibility to stand in front of it. It's actually all the priesthood who carry the presence of God. When their sandals touch the edge of the river, then I will part it. And you could stand on the shore all day long waiting for one man to come and part the Jordan River and it would never happen because it's not God's heart. So, Don't sit on the edge of the river hoping and waiting for God to part it if God hasn't called you to sit there and wait. Maybe He's called you to step into it and as your sandals touch, then He will do what He's promised to do. And the trick is to know the difference. What God, what are you saying to me? Because I don't want to go flounder around in the ocean that you've called me to stand and wait until it parts, but I also don't want to sit on the edge of a river that you're waiting for me to step into before you part it. God, I just want to hear your heart, know your heart, know what it is. And be careful that yesterday's experience doesn't become tomorrow's expectancy. Right? Because they could have stood there and said, well, we're at a body of water. What God does in this situation is He has Moses come and raise his staff. Since Moses isn't here and Joshua is, then maybe it's Joshua's turn. Joshua, come up here and raise your... See, if we have an expectancy of what today is going to look like because of what happened tomorrow, a lot of times we can miss it. Because we're waiting for the man to come and walk up and God said, no, I want everybody that carries the presence. And guess what? In the new covenant, every single one of us are priests that carry the presence of God. So every single one of us, there's an opportunity and there's a chance that maybe the thing that he's wanting us to walk into, he said, I'm waiting for everyone's sandals who carry my presence and are priests of my home to walk into the river and then they'll see the water part. Having expectancy of what it looks like for God to show up is why the Pharisees couldn't see Jesus when He stood right in front of them. Because they knew what it would look like when He came. And when He came, it didn't look anything like what they expected. And He's standing in front of them doing everything that was prophesied. The lame walk, the deaf hear, the sick are healed, the dead are raised. Every prophecy Jesus fulfills and He's standing in front of them and they look at Him and they say, 
Who do you think you are that you're going to heal somebody on this Sunday? That's their response to him. Why? Because surely if he's the Messiah, he's not going to look like he does, and he's certainly not going to break one of our rules. And since he broke one of our rules and doesn't look like what we expected, there's no way he could be the Messiah. So the best thing that we could do is kill him. It makes sense, right? But you know what the crazy thing is, is that in a lot of our lives, there's things that die because they're waiting for us to see them and they're right in front of us. And because it doesn't look like what we expected, it withers up and dies because we haven't grabbed a hold of it. Just make sure that we stay open, you guys, as a people. Just make sure that we stay teachable, that we don't have everything so figured out that Jesus isn't standing in front of us and we're looking over Him going, where's Jesus? Because that's essentially what they were doing. They're, they're, they're telling you, could you, could you move out of the way? We're trying to find the Messiah. Hey, you, step aside real quick. He's supposed to come down this path. He's going to ride on a beast of burden. Could you move that donkey and get out of the way? We're waiting for Him to come. Genesis chapter 17, verse 9. God said further to Abraham, Now as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. And you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. And every male among you who is eight days old shall be circumcised throughout your generations. A servant who is born in the house or who is bought with money from any foreigner who is not your descendant. Any ser- a servant who is born in your house or who is bought from money surely shall be circumcised. Thus shall my covenant be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. But an uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people. He's broken my covenant. God, I thank you for... Your word, I thank you that as we, as we dive into this, this covenant teaching on circumcision, God, the Holy Spirit, that you, you just speak through me. That your words flow from your heart into my mouth and that I would speak everything you have to say. God, I thank you that our hearts are open to receive, that our minds, God, that we would be careful how we hear as you instructed. That our, that our ears would be open to hear, our minds to comprehend, and our hearts to receive. That, that our lives would produce fruit that a world that does not know you and needs to so desperately would taste and see that you're good because of the fruit of my life, the fruit of our lives. In Jesus' name. So, Abraham is circumcised and this is the sign now. We've been talking about covenant for a while. If you haven't been here, you can catch the messages on iTunes. And, um, but we've been talking about covenant. And so Abraham, God gives him a sign. He says, Abraham, this is what I want you to do and I want every male once they're eight days old from this point on, and in fact, not just your descendants, and this is so awesome to me, because even in this, you see God's heart for people who are not His people. Because He says, Abraham, this is not just for you, but any, stranger's per- uh, any stranger who's in your house, who's been brought into your house, any slave who's been brought in, anyone who is a descendant that lives in your house. In other words, anyone who comes to Me, Abraham, whether they're of your line or not, they can be circumcised and brought into this covenant. And it's like, man, sometimes you know, we, we, the, the teaching is so strict on, well, it was just for this and it was just for that. But even in the beginning, we can see hints of God's heart for people who are outside of His own chosen people. And he says, Abraham, if you bring them into your house, they can be circumcised and part of this covenant. 
And so this was the sign that they had, right? It wasn't the covenant, but it was the sign of the covenant. And it was something that they had that was to remind them of the covenant. It's a circumcision, a circle cut, right? And so God said, I want every male child to be circumcised. And, and by this, you will know that you have the covenant with me. And this will be a sign of that. So it's a reminder of covenant. So every time a man would be alone and naked, he would see a sign that he was in covenant with the God of the universe and it would remind him of the promises that were made. We do this in marriage, right? We take a circle cut from precious metal and we put it on our fingers and every time we see it and every time someone else sees it, it's a sign that we are in covenant with somebody and it's a reminder of promises that we made. And if you got married and didn't realize you were entering into a covenant, you were. It's the most sacred relationship between two human beings on earth. It's the only covenant relationship that God says that He binds together with the Holy Spirit. And it's a cord of three, never intended to be broken. And so we have that in our marriage. But they would have this, and and when when they were circumcised, it was this reminder. And if you look through the history of the Bible, people that understood the covenant that they had always did amazing things for God. It was like this reminder that, wait a minute, I'm not alone. I am not in this for myself. I'm not alone. He's not left me here to do everything that He's called me to do all by myself. And, and, and yet, there are things that I'm called to do even though I have a covenant. It's important that we understand that. That just because they had a covenant didn't mean that they walked in every one of the promises if they didn't understand, believe, and then live as though the covenant was true. You can find a quick example of that by turning to Samuel 17 and looking when David walks into camp. Goliath's in the valley shouting, send down a man to fight with me. If he defeats me, we'll be your servants and we'll be your slaves. But if I defeat him, you'll be our slaves. And every day he would walk down into the valley and he would challenge them and he would challenge their God. Who is this army of the living God that you serve? Come down and send a man down. And he's challenging them. And every one of the men that he's shouting up to would have been circumcised and had covenant with God. And every single one of the men who were up there were fully capable of doing what David did, but only one of them believed it. And only one of them acted as though it was true. See, you can have all the promises of God in your life, you guys. We can know the covenant, but if we don't live as though it's true, we won't live and enjoy the blessing that comes from the covenant. It actually takes us doing something. I know we're human beings, not human doings, but it took David actually believing enough that he ran to fight the giant for the giant to fall dead in front of him. If it was simply about being in covenant, then it, Goliath would have died the first day he walked down into the valley and challenged the army of Israel long before David showed up because for 40 days he challenged men who were in covenant with the living God to come down and fight him. And for 40 days, men who had covenant with God didn't live as though their covenant was true, that he would not protect them, he would not provide for them, that he would not be their defender. And for 40 days, they sat up on the hillside, terrified because one man down in the valley challenged them. And none of them dared to live as though the covenant they had was true. This is what God's talking about in Hosea. My people perish for lack of knowledge. He's saying, you guys, listen, it's not enough for you to have this covenant with me. You have to understand and know and have knowledge of what that covenant means. And then it's up to you to live as though it's true. So David walks into the camp and he hears this cry. And I just always, I love this story so much. I talk about it all the time, but... There's so much in it. Every time I read it, I see something different. But I just love the idea of this little shepherd boy walking up and seeing all the men running. 
And he's walking towards the, the sound, the roar in the valley. He sees all these men running, and they obviously have terrified looks on their faces because he asks, why is everyone afraid? And they're so blinded by fear And they're so ignorant of the covenant that they have that all they can think is if somebody's not afraid like we are, he must not know what's going on down in the valley. There's not even a thought in their mind that maybe he believes something that we don't because they couldn't even see it. See, so many times in our lives, if somebody's not reacting the way that we're reacting, our automatic instinct is, well, they must not know what I know. They must not know what's going on. No, maybe they actually really know what's going on. Maybe they know what's going on so well that they can't react the way that you're reacting because they have a truth that's greater than what you're afraid of. And they actually believe it. See, these men are just like, well, well, he must not know what's going on. He must not know what the giant is doing. He must not know the threat that's down there. And so they said, haven't you heard? This man, he challenges us every day and he's this big and they tell him how big he is and all the, you know, the, how big his weapons are and the enemy's always wanting you to be impressed by how big he is and all of his weapons and what he's done. He's been a warrior since the days of his youth and, and making sure that you understand that he's bigger, badder, stronger and more equipped than you are. And, but to David, only one thing matters and he says, who is this uncircumcised Philistine? See, so he doesn't say who is this Philistine. And in his response, he gives us a clue as to why he wasn't afraid. It's because he understood, this is a man who's not in covenant with the God of the universe the way that I am. He's uncircumcised. He doesn't have what I have. Who is he? And how dare he defy the armies of the living God? See, because David actually believes the covenant, but more than just believing the covenant, he lives as though he believes it. That's true belief. We can sit back all day long and say, yeah, I believe this and I believe that, but the fruit of my life actually will determine what I really believe. Because it's one thing to say I believe it, it's another thing to live like it's true. Well, you know, brother, the Bible says, my God will supply all of my needs according to His riches and glory, and I just believe that, but in the meantime, I'm freaking out, I can't have any peace, I'm up at night, and I'm taking this responsibility on as though it's mine, and it's robbing my ability to enjoy today, because even though I know a promise, I don't actually believe it enough to live like it's true. See, we can find ourselves there, right? Like we can find ourselves in these places where we can say with our mouth, but with our heart we don't believe. That's what Jesus told me. He said, with their mouths they honor me, but their hearts are far from me. And we always take that as, you know, well, people were sinning even though they were saying the right thing. And certainly it could mean that. But another way it could mean that is this. With their mouths they declare the principles of the covenant, but with their hearts, their hearts are troubled and they're far from me. Why? Because if my heart has stayed on Him, how could I possibly be panicked and nervous and terrified like I am? whose heart is fixed upon him is the one who actually believes the things that he says. And so David doesn't come down and sit in the camp and join them at the fire telling the stories of what God could do. Because certainly they would have known all the stories of God delivering people in the past and what God had done and how God was able and kept the sun up in the sky and, and all these different stories, right? They could have sat around and they would have, they would have been first, second, third generation people who, who heard these stories of what God had done, who had heard the stories of God's provision from the mouths of the people who lived it. And I promise you when they sat around the campfire, they probably told each other these stories every single night and by the morning they had worked themselves up to have the courage to go to the battle line and stand there and make their battle cry. 
It said in every morning they would go out and they would face each other. And David heard the battle cry and it was this fierce yell meant to put fear into the enemy. The problem is is that a fierce yell doesn't put fear into the enemy if the first time the enemy yells back, the fierce yell turns into a whimper and panicked men turn and run in terror. How, How sad would it be if there was a body of believers alive today who were called His people and had all the promises of God who gathered and shouted and their battle cry was fierce, but the first time an enemy walked into the valley, their battle cry turned into a whimper and they turned and ran in fear. See, it's one thing to stand and say what you believe. It's a whole other thing when cancer walks into the valley and gives its shout and challenges what you believe to stand there and believe that what you said before cancer talked is still true after cancer said what it has to say. It's a whole other thing to say what you believe when there's money in the bank account or when you have a way that you can see that income's coming. It's a whole other thing when the, when, the va- when, when the giant of poverty walks into the valley and starts to threaten and starts to talk to you about what your bank account does or doesn't look like and what's not there and what just happened and how you heard this rumor that this is going to happen and that's going to happen and all these things happen. It's a whole other thing after that giant walks into the valley and says what it's going to say to stand there and still declare what you said before it spoke. And it's a whole new level to actually believe that there's something that I have because of the promises of God to go and do something about it. Because David didn't sit back and say, well guys, listen, he's uncircumcised, so that means he's not in covenant with God, and that means he has no chance of defeating us so if God promised that He would fight and protect us, then let's just hang out here. I don't see the point in any of us getting riled up. Like, what's the point of the battle cry even? Why are we doing that? Don't we, don't we believe the promises of God? And, and, and if God said it, then He's obviously going to do it. So what I think we should do is go build comfortable chairs up on the front row of the valley. So that we can sit and do absolutely nothing and watch God do what He promised He would do. That's not what David said. David said, you guys, here's the deal. I have a covenant. He doesn't. So that means if I go down and I take Him on in battle, He's going to die and I'm not. Surely God has helped me defeat the lion and the bear. He will deliver this uncircumcised Philistine into my hands. Every time he talks about Goliath, he points out that he's uncircumcised. Why? Because the only reason he believed that he could beat him is because he understood he had a covenant and Goliath didn't. Because outside of that, there's no chance. And they say, who do you think you are? You'll, you'll find out that you'll hear that question a lot. The more you believe in the covenant you have with God and you start declaring the things that God will do because He's promised. See, everybody's comfortable when you talk about what God could do. Nobody questioned anybody the night before the campfire when they said, well, you know, God could just easily you know, cause something to come down and smite Him in the head. No one would fault them for that. But one boy walks into the camp assured of what God will do and opens his mouth and says, surely God will. And the first thing that happens is the people closest to him, his brothers, say, who do you think you are? Don't be surprised if people that don't believe the way that you do start to question who you think you are when all you're doing is telling them who God said he would be. Because confidence sounds like arrogance to people that don't understand the way that you do. 
And rather than challenge themselves and say, rather than his, his brothers humble themselves and say, David, what gives you this great confidence? They had to find a reason why he was wrong for what he believed. Rather than trying to point out what's wrong with somebody that says something, that repeats a promise of God and try to figure out what's wrong with them, why wouldn't we humble ourselves a little bit and go to them and say, you know what, I see something in your life that I don't see in mine. And I want to know why you believe the way that you believe to the point that it actually manifests itself in your life. Rather than trying to figure out, well, who do they think that they are? Maybe they know who they are. Maybe they know who He is. And maybe they actually believe that He'll do what He said He would do. And maybe that's not being arrogant. That's called believing. And maybe it would be the most humble thing that we could do and the most beneficial thing that we could do rather than try to tear down what they believe is to go to them and figure out why what they believe gives them a confidence that what I believe doesn't. Well, yeah, that's easy for them to say because... No, it's not easy for them to say because. It's easy for them to say because it's true. Because God said it. Carl stood up there last week and delivered a message that's pretty challenging. A little bit tough. Sorry, I didn't mean to kick your back. It was a challenging message. It was a little bit tough. And you could see that he was having a hard time because he could see. And I talked to him afterwards and he said, you know, as he's looking out, he's wondering how people are going to receive this. And, you know, I have all this. And, and if people know my life, they know that, you know, I've been really blessed. And so maybe people would say, well, it's easy for him to say because of this. The truth of the matter is, is it's not easy for him to say because he has. It's easy for him to say because God promised it. And if God did it for him when he applied the principles of God's word to his finances, God will do it for you when you apply the principles of God's word to your finances. And rather than discredit the messenger and say, well, yeah, he can say that because, why wouldn't we humble ourselves a little bit and say, you know what, I haven't done a lot of those things and maybe I should start to learn from someone who has. That's the beautiful part about submit yourselves one to another. Right? Is that there's people in my life that know things that I don't. Two weeks ago, I was facing a decision. And I didn't know what, which way to go on it. And I went back and forth. And me and Patty prayed about it. We went back and forth. And we're trying to figure it out. And she's like, well, if you think. And I'm like, well, no, no. It's not what I think. What do you think? You know? I'm not owning this one. <laughs> I'm smart enough to know. Like, we're going to agree together or we're not going to do it. Because I am not going to hold on to that wheel as the ship goes down. She's going to be right there with me, chained to that wheel, because she made the decision too. No, really, that's a good thing for you married people, though. Like, if you can't come to an agreement, and you're both not hearing God, it's, if it's not a life or death situation where you have to make an immediate thing, just put it on the table, and you know, both of you guys get together and get with God and wait for Him to speak to both, because He's not going to say one thing to one and another thing to the other, because you're not two people anymore in His eyes. You're one flesh. So when He speaks, it's the same thing to both. And so we're, we're, trying to, we're going back and forth on this. And finally, I'm like, well, I know someone that knows more than I do about this. And just saying those words put, brought such a freedom and a peace to me. It was like I'm admitting that there's a place in my life that somebody knows more than I do about something. And in doing that, it brings a peace because now I understand, okay, maybe God put them in my life because they have a revelation that I don't. Because they have things that I don't. And maybe part of submitting yourselves one to another is us being humble enough to see people who are gifted or talented or have knowledge in an area that we don't and then actually submitting ourselves to them. And so I said, you know what, this is what I'm going to do. I'm just going to ask them, and whatever they say, that's what we're going to do. 
I'm going to submit myself and submit this to them. And whatever they say, that's what we're going to do. And as the words came out of my mouth, there was this peace that flooded my heart because I was admitting there's somebody who knows more than I do. And I was positioning myself to actually submit myself to what they said. And I wasn't leaning on my own understanding, but I was doing what I felt like God had called me to do. And I was trusting him and trusting that he would direct my path. And it was like instantly this peace came over me because now no longer do I have to be the smartest guy in the room. I just have to know who is. I don't have to be the one that knows the best. I just have to know who in the room does and trust that the Holy Spirit will show me who that is and lead me to those people and submit myself to them. And if David's brothers would have done that, if they would have just had a little bit of humility, if they would have just come to him and said, David, okay, we cannot deny that while everybody else is running from the battle, freaking out, you don't look afraid at all. What's going on? Why do you have a peace when nobody else does? Why do you have a confidence when nobody else does? Instead, what do they try to do? They try to discredit him. You're just a boy. Who do you think that you are? David's like, I imagine it was breaking his heart because he's looking at them going, you guys have the same covenant I do. And he said, so what will be done for the man who defeats this, this Philistine? And they said, oh, Saul's going to give him this and this and this. And he's probably at this point looking around going, man, even if I didn't believe I had a covenant, I'd go down there for a chance at that. But I've got a covenant. It's a no-lose. Like, of course I'll go do it. And of course he goes to Saul. He says the same thing to him. God will deliver the head of this uncircumcised Philistine today into your servant's hand. He is convinced. Why? Because his faith is not in himself. His faith is in the one who he has covenant with. I just, you need to know that when you start to talk about what God will do based on his promises, you're going to have people who won't think that you're arrogant and try to find something wrong with you when really what they're doing is trying to find something wrong with God because he's the one that said it. All I'm doing is speaking it. We have to understand as ambassadors, we don't have the right to have an opinion. We speak what the king said. You know, with so many issues going on, social stuff right now, the verse that gets thrown around all the time is judge not, lest you also be judged. A judgment would be me hearing the information and then deciding on my own what I think is okay or what I think is right. I would never dare to do that, but I can promise you I will as an ambassador speak what the king said. And if the king's spoken, when I repeat what the king said, that's not me judging. That's me being an ambassador for the kingdom. And if you don't like what comes from my mouth, if I'm repeating what the word says, take it to the king. But instead, people accuse you. Well, who are you to judge? I'm not judging. I'm just telling you the judge already spoke. This was the verdict. Do with it what you will. I pray that you'll do the right thing. I dare not judge. I dare not decide. I dare not go after hearing your story. Well, I, I can kind of see how you know that would make sense for you because you know you've you've been through this and you've been through that. No, I, I don't dare to do that because I would be giving you less than the truth, and then I actually would be judging because I would be speaking something based on my own thought, intellect, and emotion. I don't dare to do that. Not when the judge already spoke. We're ambassadors, you guys. We don't have the right to an opinion. It's not a democracy. It's a monarchy. And there's a king. And he spoke. And then he called us. That's why Paul said, now we plead 
as though God Himself were speaking through us, be reconciled to God. When you open your mouth and you speak what the King has spoke, it's as if God Himself is speaking. When someone comes to you and wants advice on a subject that the Bible is black and white about, you do them a horrendous disservice to try to mix your opinion into what the judge already said rather than telling them the truth because the truth is the only thing that has a promise of freedom attached to it. You can give someone a feeling of freedom and make them feel better for a moment where they are, but it's not true freedom because it's not truth. Well, we're called to love. The most unloving thing that you can do is lie to somebody and leave them in a position where they're living less than what the Father has sent His Son to die for them to live. Well, that sounds mean. No. No, you don't understand. If you have children, then you understand this. Your child may think it's mean when you don't give them everything they want. The most loving thing that you can ever do to your children is sometimes say no. You're mean! One of our kids said to us one time. They did. With the the angry little accusing finger and everything. You're mean! See, that's why we have to be adults and grow up into all things. Because when I was a child, I thought as a child, I spoke as a child, I did as a child. When I became a man, I put away childish things. When I became a man, when I became a son, when I understood the responsibility that I carry as an ambassador of the kingdom, I realized life is way too fragile and way too short for me to give anybody anything less than the truth, no matter how I may perceive that they will feel. The worst thing that you can do is start predicating your answers with a thought of, how are they going to respond to this? When you start doing that, you've already lost because you have determined there's something other than the truth you might give them if you think the response might be other than what you want. Don't ever do that. If you find yourself putting a yeah but after what the Gospel says, stop right there because you're headed in a dangerous direction. Well, I know the Word says this, but just stop. And just consider that you're thinking of adding your own opinion to what God actually spoke. Just for one minute, think about the fact that you are about to say, I know what he said, comma, but just stop because anything after that is completely irrelevant if it contradicts what was said before that. And it doesn't matter how people are going to respond or how you think they're going to respond. The only thing in the world that has a promise of freedom attached to it is truth. That's it. You know, you have to speak the truth in love. Listen, the most loving thing that you can do is speak the truth to somebody. That doesn't mean water down the truth so that you can call it loving. We don't sacrifice truth on the altar of love. In fact, I would reason with you that the reason it says the truth in love and not love in truth is because you cannot tell the truth without love because anything less than truth is not loving no matter how loving you think it is because there's no loving way to lie to somebody because you've just done them the greatest disservice of their life because you've given them something that you call truth and that they may receive as truth that's actually a lie. And if they build their house on that foundation, they build their house on that rock, one day it's going to come tumbling down. And it'll be that sandy foundation that you gave them calling them truth because you wanted to be loving that caused it to happen. Don't do that. Give them the rock so that if they decide to build on it, it'll stand. What they do with it is not your responsibility. You've never been called to results, only to obedience, ever. You're never called to look at the result and say, well, 
I guess that wasn't God, because if that's the case, Jesus could look out at any time during his ministry and say, I guess I missed it. Because the results of Jesus' ministry didn't always line up with how to win friends and influence people. It's almost as if he didn't read that book. All right, I should stop now because the spirit is done and anything from this point on is going to be just me on a tangent. So let's get back to where we were. It's really important that we understand that, that God can be speaking through you and then he can be done. And if you want to keep speaking because you like the direction that it's going, now you become responsible for the things that you said. Don't do that. If you're going to at least let people know, okay, God's done now, this is me. I'm serious because, you know, there's nothing wrong with sharing your opinion with people if they're asking your opinion about things, but don't go from talking about what God is saying into what you think that means without letting people know. This is what God said. If you have a word to give somebody, just give them the word. That's it. When you're done with what God spoke to you, be done with what God spoke to you. Don't try to spin it, twist it, or give them your opinion of what it might mean or what you think unless you let them know. Now, this is just, thus saith the Roy. That was what God told me, and this is, in praying into it, this is what I feel. But you'd probably be better off just to let them process it for a little bit, and then if they come to you with some questions later, then maybe you can talk it through with them and process it through with them. So anyways, he's done with that subject, so I'm done with that subject. And um, So David, he doesn't just perch up and say, well, God promised to do it, let's watch and see what he does. Well, yeah, but there's verses that say, you know, that to just watch and see the hand of deliverance. Yeah, but even that was obedience to what he actually spoke. And you're actually doing something because in that moment, he's called you to stand and watch and see the deliverance of the Lord. That's not the answer every single time. If it was, David would have never gathered his stones and his sling and ran down into the valley and cut the head off the giant with the sword that the giant trusted to kill him. But here's the thing. There was an expectancy because of the covenant that he had that there's something different on my life than on his life. And if he is threatening me, it's a bad day for him because he's not in covenant with the God of the universe and I am. So now we move this into the new covenant, right? We move it into the new covenant and, and Ephesians 6.12 tells us, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. And we read um, in Colossians, Colossians 2.8, see to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. For in Him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, and in Him you have been made complete, and He is the head over all rule and authority. And in Him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, in the removal of the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with Him through faith in the working of God who raised Him from the dead. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, He made you alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, 
He has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. So in the new covenant, the fight goes from flesh and blood to the spirit realm, and consequently the circumcision goes from a circumcision of flesh and blood to a circumcision by the hand of the spirit. Paul tells us in Romans, and he says this, and this is what he's saying here. He's saying he's writing to the Colossians. He's saying, remember, in him, remember, in him is always a covenant term. When you hear in him, in him, it's in covenant with him. Greater is he that's in me than he that's in the world. Greater is the one that I'm in covenant than the one that the world is in covenant. There's a God of this world. There's the God of the universe. And they are diametrically opposed to each other. And the one who is in covenant with God is always greater than the one who's in covenant with anybody but God. And so he says, remember in him um, that, that you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands and the removal of the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. When you were dead in the transgressions and uncircumcision of your flesh, He made you alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our transgressions. What He's saying is when you were dead in the sin that you were committing and the thing that was causing you to commit that sin was alive in you, He came through faith and by grace and He actually removed not only the sin by the blood, but by a circumcision of the Holy Spirit, He cut away the flesh, which was the thing that mastered and dominated you before that point so that you were separated from that and you were no longer mastered and dominated by the flesh. In other words, this is what he's saying. You guys, before you were born again, you had a master, and it was your flesh. And when you were obeying your master, when you were in perfect submission, you were committing sin. And it was an act of rebellion if you actually did the right thing. And then he came, and he forgave you of that sin, and he cut away by circumcision of the Spirit the flesh and He gave His Spirit within you. And, and when that happened, all things passed away. Everything became new. You were baptized with Christ into death and raised with Him into life. So what is it saying? It's saying this. When everything passed away and everything, all things became new, you were circumcised. And the circumcision was a cutting of the Holy Spirit and cutting the actual body of flesh away from your heart so that now you have a new master and you are now no longer a slave to sin, but a slave to righteousness. So when you sin, you are actually in disobedience and you are doing not what's natural because you've been a partaker of the divine nature according to Second Peter. You're actually in full-on rebellion and disobedience and that's why it hurts to do things that you used to do without even a second thought. Because actually you've been circumcised in your heart. The flesh has been cut away and the Spirit has come. And you're now no longer a slave to sin, but a slave to righteousness. You have a new master. You have a new voice to obey. And it's the voice of the Holy Spirit who's leading and guiding you into all truth. And you actually have to disobey His leading and guiding and go astray so that you can sin. It's no longer who you are. It's no longer what comes natural. And you actually have to betray what's natural for you to do something that opposes the will of God for your life. Before you were born again, the best you could do is act holy. Now that you're born again, the worst you can do is act as if you're not. First Corinthians or Second Corinthians three sixteen. Don't you know that you are holy? That God's temple is holy, and that is what you are: holy, blameless, upright. And this is something I feel like is such a deception in the church where we feel like, yeah, but you know, there's always this battle going on within me of light and darkness. Where does the Bible talk about, and, and I know Romans 7, and we'll talk about that probably next week, but actually the Bible, when it talks about light and darkness, says that the two actually cannot be together. They can't coexist. For what does light have to do with darkness? Or what company does Christ have with Baal? 
He says you're no longer a slave to sin, but now a slave to righteousness. Not you're still a slave to sin, but you're also a slave to righteousness and you have two masters. No man can serve two masters. You will love one and hate the other. You will either love righteousness and its mastery of your life, or you will love sin and its mastery of your life, and you will despise the other. That's what he's talking about. You can apply it to money. You can apply it to sin. You can apply it to anything that you cannot have two masters. So this whole, I have two different natures, and you know the Spirit of God is in me, but there's also the Spirit of this world. No, the Spirit of this world was in you. You became born again a new creation, and you were filled with His Holy Spirit. There is nothing, no other Spirit that's in you but the Holy Spirit. Well, then how come if that's the case, I can still sin? Well, how come if before you were born again, there was nothing good in you, you could actually do the right thing? Before you were born again, there's people out there who are not born again that feed the homeless, that give of themselves, that will be truthful even if it hurts, that are honest people, that in a situation where everybody else would lie, they'll tell the truth and they don't believe with their mouth and acknowledge that there is a God. They have the, the, nature of, the fallen nature of Adam. They are not born again. They're born once into the first Adam. Yet they can choose to actually rebel from the master that is sin that's over them and do the right thing. And in the same way, when you become born again, a new creation in Christ, you can choose, if you wish to, to rebel against the new master of your life, the Holy Spirit, and you can sin. But the difference is, is one is not, you're not doing that anymore because it's who you are. It's something that you choose to do. The, 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 the more we understand that, the less power sin has over our lives. Because if we feel like we are sin waiting to happen, we will constantly wake up in the morning and wait for sin to happen. And when it happens, we'll then use that as a self-fulfilling prophecy and see, say that's because I'm just a sinner. The problem is, is that the Bible says over and over again that you're no longer a slave to sin, but a slave to righteousness. That you're not a sinner, you're a saint. Even when you do something that is the behavior of a sinner, it doesn't make you any more a sinner than doing something that is the behavior of a doctor makes you a doctor. Well, I put a band-aid on someone once, so I must be a doctor. No, you acted like one. Well, I sinned once, I must be a sinner. No, you acted like one. You're actually a son of God. You're a holy temple of His Holy Spirit, and that's what you are. The sinful flesh was cut away. And it says... um, in Ephesians 4.17, he says, so, I, so this I say and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. You understand that ignorance is the greatest thing that keeps people from walking in the life that God has for them? That's the word. He says they're excluded because of the ignorance in them. In other words, it's not that there's something wrong with them. It's that they don't understand all that Jesus did so that there could be something right in them. And if they understood that, they wouldn't walk in the ignorance that they walk and they wouldn't be excluded from the life of God. And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. But you did not learn Christ in this way if indeed you have heard Him and been taught Him, just as truth is in Jesus, that in reference to your former life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance to the lust of deceit, and that you would be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and put on the new self, which is in the likeness of God, has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. You lay aside the old self, and you put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in the righteousness and holiness of truth. So you've laid aside the old self, 
and you've put on the new self, which is recreated in righteousness and truth, a new creation in Christ. And that is who you are, and that's your identity. You are now a new creation, righteous, brand new. All things have passed away. Everything has become new. And yet, every now and then, you decide to lay off the new man and go back and put on the old man and live like you did before you were born again. And the problem is, is if you believe that you have this dual nature going on and you don't have it established that you're a son, when you do that, you will start to say, well, that's because I'm just A, and as a man thinks in his heart, so he is. And so you'll start to behave like you believe that you are. And so, I'm trying to think if I need to go into this or not. Okay, all right, let's do this. Turn to Isaiah 53 real quick. I just want to, I'm going to finish up with this and close up with this, and then um, next week we'll get into some more stuff because I feel like if I start down that path, there's a whole lot of things I'd have to explain. Isaiah 53, chapter 53, verse 5, it says, But he was pierced for our, through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each one of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter, and like a sheep that is silent before its shears, so he did not open his mouth. How many of you have been told and confessed out of your mouth that you, like sheep, have gone astray? We sing it, you guys. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Right? We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Everyone. We can quote that verse. Well, you know, we're just like sheep and we constantly go astray. And we take that Old Testament verse that tells us this. The problem is, is that if Jesus died because we all, like sheep, had gone astray and He died to set us free for that and He paid the penalty, the iniquity of us was laid upon Him and He actually died so we could be set free from that, then if we are still wandering like sheep, how have we been set free? So why don't we turn to the New Covenant and find out what Peter has to say about this exact same thing. Because this verse is never quoted when it talks about how we're like sheep. I've never heard someone quote this verse. 1 Peter 2, chapter 21. I mean, chapter 21, verse... Chapter 2, verse 21. For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example to follow in His steps, who committed no sin... Nor was any deceit found in his mouth, and while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds you were healed. For you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. You were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and the guardian of your souls. Why do we see ourselves as poor little lost sheep that are constantly wandering, needing a shepherd with a rod to break our legs to keep us from walking away? If the Word says that that's what you were, but now you are. The problem is is this, if we don't believe this to the point, we don't believe that the covenant that God has given us, we don't believe that the circumcision that was made by the Holy Spirit is permanent. Listen, you cannot have a sort of circumcision. 
Circumcision, by its definition, is a circle cut. If it was anything less, it's a semi-circumcision, and that's not possible. It means completely cut all the way around. If you believe that what was wrong was completely cut away from you, and that what was right was completely placed into you, then even when you do something that you know that you shouldn't, your response is different because you don't think, well, I'm just a sheep and I constantly go astray, and that's what the Bible says, and I'm just a filthy sinner, and that's why I do these things. You actually see yourself for who you are, and your response, rather than labeling yourself by what you've done wrong, is this. God, I thank you that there was a time I could do these things and not even notice. And I thank You that You've so changed my life, God, that You've given me a new nature, that You've actually put Your Spirit inside of me, and that I'm no longer a slave to sin, but I'm a slave to righteousness. That when I do something unrighteous, God, I understand that I'm actually rebelling against the One who is my Master. I'm acting outside of who I am, God, and I thank You that it hurts. I thank You that I can no longer be okay doing things that I once was okay doing. God, I thank You that I'm righteous and holy and that I'm Your Son and that I actually see with a single eye and I understand that this is not who I am. And God, I thank You that Your Son paid a price on the cross to set me free from this, that I could actually be free and live differently. God, I thank You that You so changed me that things that once weren't even an afterthought now actually break my heart because I see that it's not who I am. And I understand the price that Jesus paid on the cross. God, I thank You for the blood of Your Son which has washed me free from all uncleanliness. And I thank You that I'm a new creation recreated in Your image and in Your likeness. That I'm holy, blameless, upright, set apart, and that I'm Your son and I'm Your daughter. God, I thank You that that has no place in my life. And suddenly, what have You done? Rather than sitting around going, oh, I can't believe I did that. I'm so bad. I always do this stuff. I knew it was going to happen. See, everything was going so good. And I knew, because this is how it always goes, that one day, uh, this was going to happen. And see, all that stuff about me being a new creation, if I'm such a new creation, if I'm no longer a slave to sin, then why do I find myself doing this stuff? I must just be a filthy sinner. Oh God, please forgive me. I need to be born again again and you're looking at everything that's wrong with you and you're claiming everything that's wrong and all you're doing out of your mouth is saying I don't believe that the obedience of Jesus is stronger than the disobedience of Adam and God I need more there's something more that needs to be done but when you actually see it for what it is and you believe that you have the covenant with him that's everlasting that he'll never leave you he'll never forsake you and that he will never change his mind about you and that when your sin was taken from you it was done away with once and for all when you actually believe that the confession of your mouth will line up with everything that's right god i thank you that that's not who i am why because i see that's not who i am see we need to speak to our children like this rather than saying you lied You don't want to be a liar. No, no, no. You look at them and you say, you lied, but that's not who you are. You're not a liar. And that's why mommy and daddy are telling you not to do that because that's not who you are. If you were a liar, son, I would just let you lie all the time because that's who you are. But you're not. And so when you do, there's a consequence. You're not an angry, mean person. So when you act angry and mean, there's consequences. If you were just an angry, mean kid... We'd let you be angry and mean, but that's not who you are. You're loving and the love of God is inside of you. So when you act differently than that, we come and correct you on that because we want to see you live out who God created you to be. See, there's a difference in saying, you're so mean and angry. No, you're not. They're acting mean and angry. They're actually a new creation in Christ. They're filled with His Spirit and they're full of the love of God.
You liar. No, they're not a liar. If they were, why would you care? Honestly, if someone's a liar, why would it surprise you? Why would you be hurt when they lie? We don't get mad when a lion chases down a gazelle. That's what lions do. If someone's a liar, then why would we be upset if they lied? That's what they do, but they're not. And we see them that way, and we need to see ourselves that way, you guys. We've got to understand and get this thing. We're going to talk more about it next week because I know there's some questions from Romans, and I really want to dig into that as a body so that we don't have that. But yeah, but what about what Paul said this? And we're going to answer all those questions next week. But we need to understand this, you guys. If we actually believe the covenant that we have with God, we'll begin to live differently, and we'll actually live out what we say that we believe. But we have to believe that we are who he says that we are and that we have what he says that we have. It's got to make a difference. Um, There's a a tragedy that just happened last night. We were sitting at a table having dinner and a phone call came and it turns out that someone here's um, daughter has a really good friend that she's she's great friends with and and his father killed himself. His family came home from the beach and found the father dead. And we were just talking about a different suicide that had taken place and You guys, there's got to be something in our lives. I'm serious. There's got to be something in our lives that when people see it, they see hope where there was no hope before. When the lepers are walking along, they're supposed to say, unclean, unclean, and let people know what's wrong with them. But when they see Jesus, they say, Son of David, have mercy on us because they see something in Him that's greater than the disease they see in them. And I want us as a family to be those people, you guys, that people see something greater in us than the thing that's wrong with them. And so rather than telling us about what's wrong with them, they come to us and ask us for the hope that we have. That will only come as we start to actually live out the the love of God and it manifests in our lives, believing that we are who He said that we are and having a confidence that He'll do what He said He would do. See, because when they see Jesus, rather than letting Him know that they're unclean like they were supposed to, if you had leprosy, when you saw someone coming, you had to shout, unclean, unclean, unclean. That was to let them know, don't come near me. There's something wrong with me. But there was something in Jesus that gave them a hope. And rather than shouting unclean, they shouted, Son of God, have mercy on us and help us. I want people to see hope in us, you guys. Something that if somebody was actually to the point of wanting to kill themselves, wanting to take their own life, if the enemy had lied to them so greatly that they found themselves in that place, that when they see you, when they see me, they would come to us and see the hope that's in us and say, I need help. I need help. Help me. I want what you have. But you guys, if we just walk through this world running from the battle like every other soldier, there's nothing different about us. If this first time Goliath shouts in the valley, our battle cry leaves our mouths, our faith leaves our heart, and we turn and run with the rest of society, there's nothing different about us. How would they pick us out from the crowd and know that we're the one that's supposed to have the answer? Something should look different. Believing that we have this covenant, believing that we are who God says that we are should change the way that we live. Something should be different. God, I thank You for... I thank You for the promises that we have. I thank You for this covenant that we have with You, God. God, I thank You that You weren't content with simply having an outward sign, God, but that inside of us You changed things so that an outward sign could manifest. That we're no longer sin waiting to happen, but we're the will of God waiting to manifest in every situation. God, that we're not screw-ups just because we've screwed up, that we're not failures just because we've failed, but that we are who You say that we are. We're sons, we're daughters, we're more than conquerors. That the kingdom of God has been placed within us. That we are holy temples of the Holy Spirit. 
blameless, upright, set apart, prepared for every good work, equipped for everything that we need, God, that we would walk in a way that people would see something different. God, I pray for a greater level of humility in Your body, God, that rather than look at people who have something that we don't and try to find something wrong with them, that we would actually humble ourselves and ask them what's right. God, if somebody actually believes to the point that they will be confident to declare what You will do in a situation, rather than try to find what's wrong, we would go to them and just say, I don't believe that the way that You do, and I want to know why. That we wouldn't be people with our heart that would confess one, th- or with our mouth would confess one thing, but in our hearts be far from it, God. That the actual belief in our heart would match the confession of our lips. I thank you for that in Jesus' name.